0: Greetings, everyone. What's up? hope you're doing well today. Happy March 17th. If you celebrate St. Paddy's Day, happy St. Paddy's Day. Otherwise, happy Thursday and um, happy kind of breaking news last minute changing up our episode today from being a historical figure episode to an exoplanet episode. Um, now, as I was looking further and further into... Um, My kind of own Google research situation. Um, Disclaimer this exoplanet was actually discovered in 2016. However, a whole bunch of new research came out about this exoplanet, which is really exciting. Um, And that's what I want to share with you all today. So, my bad for uh, maybe saying planet discovery, exoplanet discovery it was still discovered just a little bit further back in time. Um So let's see. Uh, new new studio sounds great. Oh, that's so awesome to hear. Um, I have not put up any sound foam just yet. I'm actually waiting for that to arrive, and I think I'm just going to cover all my walls in sand foam rather than a bunch of decorative art because I just have so many 3D models. You guys can't see it right now because we are in audio-only format, but... um yeah, there's there's quite a lot going on here, so I definitely want to maybe just put up a bunch of sound foam because it is very echoey. But um, I have this really great microphone uh, headset from Collins, so hopefully that is doing the trick for you all. Um, so let's go ahead and jump into uh, this exoplanet discovery because I actually learned quite a bit learning about this. Um, so we did an episode once, kind of talking about the different types of exoplanets. Uh, so the different types of planets in general, you have, uh, gas planets, you have terrestrial planets, so like like rocky, rocky planets, uh, you have, uh, super earths, you have mini Neptunes. Um, but now there's this, this other kind of planet, which is called a super puff. I know really funny. Um, and, uh, it kind of makes me think about like, the the, the um, the power puff girls, uh, but super puff and a super puff planet um, has to do with how it looks ob- observationally and it has to do with its atmosphere. And uh, this this planet is it's still kind of being debated on what exactly to call it, whether it like the type of classification if it is either a super puff planet or if it's just that it has rings around it. So rings like Saturn, Uranus and, ne- and Neptune. but uh, it's never been discovered before. Uh, to, to find an exoplanet. So a planet beyond our own solar system that has rings around it. Never been discovered. Uh, this is hasn't, hasn't come across any, uh, information or any data that's been collected through, uh, TESS, the Transiting Exoplanetary Survey Satellite, through Hubble, Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, by the way, Hubble will eventually get to you. We were going to talk about Hubble today in historical figures, but we'll, we'll get to him another time. Um, and then uh, the new James Webb Space Telescope as well. So, uh, but what's really exciting about this is um, the researchers that are behind this exoplanet kind of kind of study uh, are actually using both the James Webb Space Telescope now and the Hubble Space Telescope. And uh, the reason for that is because the James Webb Space Telescope has really awesome new high-tech, sensitive infrared. Uh, equipment on board, and so not only is that awesome for being able to look at objects much further away, like like redshift galaxies, which are galaxies that are very very far away from us, they're redshifting away from us, which means they are moving further away. Blue shifting is moving towards us, and uh, it's also helpful for detecting exoplanets or cooler stars because of the infrared radiation. And because it's longer wavelengths, it's usually dimmer, harder to see. They're not super bright and luminous. They're not emitting ultraviolet radiation. And so uh, being able to have this type of infrared technology is really, really helpful. And another benefit of the infrared equipment is to actually look at the atmospheres of planets or exoplanets. And this is where this discovery comes in. So the name of it is let's actually get that that full name for you all. It goes by HIP41378F. I know. Just the most like unglamorous name possible, just HIP41378F. I I mean, I just- I'm not even going to try to make it sound better than it actually is. And we've, if you guys have listened to episodes in the past about how planets are named or how certain objects are named in space, you'll understand why this is called this crazy name. It really, just because it has to follow the previous exoplanet that was discovered numerically, um, and it usually has to do with, to the star that it's orbiting. So my guess here is that the star that it's orbiting is probably called the HIP star or the HIP planetary system, the HIP exoplanetary system. So uh, kind of getting into now this this exoplanet. Um, a few things I want to share with you all is, um, kind of it's, it's like measurements and what, why it's so interesting, uh, why it's, it's a little bit different. It's being called a super puff. So it's 15 times less dense than Jupiter. Jupiter's density is about 1.33 uh, grams per centimeter cubed. Compare that to Earth. It's less dense than Earth. So Earth is 5.51 grams per centimeter cube. So you have Earth, very, very kind of rocky, very heavy metals, a little bit more dense, compressed. Jupiter, much larger, uh, more gaseous, very light. So this is what we mean kind of by density. Uh, Another way to sort of comprehend it is Saturn is so, uh, so light in its density that it can float on water. Um, it is less dense than water. And so now we have this super puff exoplanet, 15 times less dense than Jupiter. And kind of keeping this in mind, uh, this is a very uh, sort of peculiar exoplanet. This is because it is a gas exoplanet, but it's not rare, right? There's tons of other um, Jupiter-like exoplanets that have been discovered that are uh, gaseous, but this one is kind of behaving a little bit differently. So what astronomers first kind of noticed were, uh, the, kind of the size of this exoplanet. Um, they were looking sort of at just how large it probably is, like kind of estimating it. I'll, I'll get the number for you guys in a sec. I haven't actually quite found it. Um, but looking at the size of it, they realized that, well, if based on its orbit and when it's orbiting around its star, If they're noticing any type of dips in light, this can be caused by different things, such as things like elements in the atmosphere that are uh, absorbing the light as it's passing around its host star. But they didn't notice that. They didn't notice that uh, there was really anything too uh, too prominent within its its atmosphere. So this was something that was just like a little bit interesting. Uh, So I'm going to actually just go ahead and read little segment for you guys. Um, where was it? It was right about here. So it says that it's, it's orbiting a star. Uh, it's an F type star. So an F type star is a main sequence or a star that's in its main sequence phase. What that just means is, um, think about our sun. Our sun is in its main sequence phase. It's known as a G type star and, uh, stars will go from being born being like a certain size, sometimes they can be really hot and blue and they can start to cool down and maybe end up on the main sequence or they can start, um, eventually they're along the main sequence and when they start to die, they can start to expand into say like a red giant star or they can explode as a supernova and eventually end up with just its core remaining, which is usually a white dwarf. So when you're looking at, there's this diagram that sort of plots all the different kinds of stars. It's not that they're different species, like species of flowers, for instance. It's that a star can actually go through these different phases in its life. So sort of think about it as being on the main sequence. It's sort of in its like adult phase before going into say it's, it's like, you know, retired phase which is when it starts to become maybe a red a red giant star. Um and then when it goes supernova it it dies. Um but then what's remaining sometimes can be that white dwarf as I mentioned. Um and that's like part of it that's still sort of remaining there and then that star now has a whole cycle as well to live. So let's see. Um oh awesome foam is a great plan. We'll definitely be doing that. So it says that it ends up having a pretty large radius for a planet that is, uh, that is of its size and its temperature. And so it, what could actually be causing this sort of optical, optical viewing might be an optical illusion. So its size and its radius could actually be caused by rings that are around it. This is what is one of the uh, proposed hypotheses right now of what is happening with this exoplanet is that. There might be some kind of ring system around it. Um, And it's also located within a pretty optimistic habitable zone of its star. So that F star that it's orbiting around, um, it's located in that habitable zone. If you don't know about the habitable zone, it's a region where Earth is located in respect to our sun, where the temperatures, the conditions are just right for the potential of life to be there. So it means that the planet can be habitable by us biological beings. So with that being said, um, this was kind of the, the first understanding of this exoplanet was, okay, we know that it's orbiting around the star that's sort of around its like adult lifetime right now, adult, adult period. We know that it is pretty large in size, especially for its density. And then we start to get into sort of analyzing its atmosphere, And this is where it gets really interesting. So, uh, there's a research team that is led by the head researcher Munaza Alam, which is out of Carnegie Earth and Planets Laboratory and Center for Astrophysics, Harvard and Smithsonian. And they ended up collecting their first near infrared transmission spectrum of this exoplanet, so the HIP 41378F. Uh, So, what this means is they're looking at its atmosphere. Looking at its atmosphere to figure out what elements are in it and to figure out what is, you know, potentially happening on the planet. Does it have rings or is it just that it has a really thick atmosphere? It's a really big planet. And, um, what they ended up getting back were some pretty interesting things about the light that got filtered through the atmosphere during a 19 hour transit across this F type star. So the host star. And this is one way that astronomers try to figure out atmospheres of planets, is by waiting for it to pass in front of its star while it's orbiting, and to try to uh, use a spectrometer to detect the spectra or what elements are present within that atmosphere. The way they do this is because the light that shines through from the star, um, they know what elements are composed of that star. Because a lot of stars have been studied, this F-type star is usually a prominent hydrogen, helium. Uh, maybe there's a few other trace elements depending on the nuclear fusion that's going on in its core. Uh, but typically, they will look for the hydrogen and helium. And then, if they find, say, something like oxygen or nitrogen, this will come up as as absorption lines on an absorption spectrum. So, if you look at a visible, as, a, as if you look at a spectrum, you'll see it looks like a rainbow. And there'll be these sort of like black lines. And that means that these elements are what are present there because they're being absorbed. And so if this happens, then it means that there are probably these kinds of elements present on that planet's atmosphere. The reason that matters is because if we find an exoplanet that has oxygen in its atmosphere, that's very exciting. Or maybe even like H2O molecules. That's super, super exciting. It means that there might be water there. It means that there might be life there. And so these are the ways that astronomers figure out if these planets have habitability based on their atmosphere. So what they ended up finding was, uh let's see, I'm going to read through this. They found that the spectrum is nearly featureless, lacking the characteristic dips that signal absorption of light by molecules in the atmosphere. So I just explained kind of those absorption of, of light. They found a lack of that. And so uh, what they, I'm going to continue kind of reading this little excerpt using one-dimensional atmospheric models, there's a bunch of images, if you want to look this up later online of these models, the authors were able to rule out a clear atmosphere that was rich in hydrogen and helium. So they ruled out a clear atmosphere. So, so now it says, however, they found that the planet's nearly flat spectrum is consistent with multiple scenarios. This exoplanet might have an atmosphere that is maybe exceptionally rich in heavier elements like helium or a layer of haze. So some planets can be hazy, kind of think like something a little bit thinner than fog or that it is rings or that there are rings around this exoplanet that's sort of causing this uh, type of scenario to happen that's causing these um, these sort of one-dimensional atmospheric models to come back as opposed to multi-dimensional think about earth when there's a sunset uh, that's a good way to sort of think about multi-dimensional atmospheres is the fact that the sky changes colors when the sun is setting uh, that's because the sunlight is being absorbed through different layers of the atmosphere like while well, it's all the way up it's scattering the blue light it's Going a little bit lower, it's scattering kind of the orange light. Going lower, it's scattering kind of purplish, pinkish light. That's a multi-level atmosphere. And they're noticing that this is something where they're like, hmm, well, we're not really picking that up. So what is that being caused by? Maybe there's haze. Maybe there's rings. So, um, then it goes on to sort of say, like, you know, if there are rings around, uh, this, this exoplanet, Then it means that the size, the measurements that we were saying, it's just, it seems like it's a much larger exoplanet than we thought it would be. It would actually be about 60% smaller than the current estimate. I mean, again, think about Saturn, Saturn's rings. Imagine if we didn't realize those were rings, we would think Saturn is huge and Saturn is already huge. But if you calculate in those rings and you think that that's the full diameter of the planet, like that's, that's massive. Um, and so this could be what's also causing uh, the the measurements to come back sh- saying that the exoplanet is this large. So if that's the case um, then, and there are rings, then most likely that would make sense for all these different things that, that I sort of just explained. Um, and I just think that would actually be really, really exciting if we end up finding the first exoplanet to have rings around it. Uh, I I was actually quite shocked to find out that there haven't been any discoveries of planets beyond our own solar system that don't have rings around them. Because I was doing an experiment the other day with um, some students on a live stream of mine that I tend to do for a bunch of kiddos. And um, I was using cotton balls to sort of, we like made our own nebula. So we took a bunch of glitter glue, it got really messy, and we made a nebula and then we chose an area where there was just like a little bit more cotton than other areas. And we said that, you know, since it's more dense there, this is when a star could eventually form. It's starting to become so dense that it'll cause be caused by gravitational collapse and a star can form and start spinning. And as it spins, it can start to cause all the other cotton around it to start to form a disk. Um, and this might sound redundant because I do talk about this a lot, but I just find it to be so fascinating that all throughout the cosmos... Things, Because things are always kind of spinning in these elliptical orbits, um, and even spherical bodies are spinning, uh, it's it's quite repeated that there are these formations of dust and gas and matter and materials that tend to circulate around a body of mass. So that being said, and the fact that Saturn has these little circulated bodies of mass that orbit around Saturn, the rings... Then why is it that we haven't found any exoplanets that have that yet? Um, What it seems like is if that's such a like common thing to happen in space. Like you look at a black hole, there's an event horizon around it, an accretion disk around it, uh, a circumstellar disk. You know, all of these things are are just yeah, disks in space. Uh, So moving forward, what can possibly answer all these questions that we have or that I've been maybe posing? is the James Webb Space Telescope. Because as I mentioned at the beginning of today's episode, the sensitive equipment would be able to actually distinguish between rings and the atmosphere. Um, what's going on in the atmosphere? And it'll be able to look at sort of the orbital period of uh, about 1.5 Earth years um, and so being able to then catch this exoplanet while it's orbiting around or transiting in front of its star um this would be something that would be part of james webb's James the James webb space telescope's five-year mission which is great um hopefully james webb goes a little bit longer than that but uh i didn't realize that until i actually had like written this earlier I was like oh five years okay well I'm sure it'll last a lot longer than that but this would just be part of, I guess, this sort of exoplanet hunting mission, and maybe the the test uh, telescope would be able to hop in as well. So um, yeah, so so that's kind of, I guess, a, a general understanding. I still think that it's it's pretty exciting that this much has kind of come back. Although I do think it's quite crazy that this was discovered in 2016, and it's now 2022, and and you know a lot of this stuff has come back and. And this kind of goes to show, I guess, like the, the, partly the frustration of, of pursuing, <laughs> um, astronomy research, at least kind of what, what I felt a little bit where I was like, Oh my gosh, I could spend 10 years on something and my contr- contribution is, is so tiny. Um, but, but it's humbling and it's about being okay with it. I think is, is sort of the thing at the end of the day, because your small contribution can end up leading, you know, to, several people after you who will then be researching it and then they would be making more contributions. Um, and it also kind of makes sense because the universe is so big and we live for such a small period of time, you know, here on earth, our lives are so short and we're so small on this, you know, orbiting rocket space. And so it it just, you know, when it comes to researching these things, it's going to take a lot, a lot of time which really makes me wonder if we ever find life beyond earth, you know, if maybe some other alien species has got it all figured out somehow. But so that is that, um, if you guys want to go ahead and just check out some of these, um, there's like a few scatterplot diagrams that are online that were just published, um, this week. So March, 2022, um, you could just go check it out, type in here. I'll put it in the chat. I'll also put it in my caption after this. Um, it's hip 4137, 4137, 8, and then the letter F. Alright. So I just put that in the comments. So if you guys want to go, um, again, and do do your own little little bit of uh, you know, a short amount of time researching this on your own, go for it. Uh I did publish that episode, by the way, from yesterday about some of the events that are happening in Austin. I made sure to attach all of the links for all the different places for star parties if you wanted to um try to go to any. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and just turn this over to you guys. If you guys have any questions, feel free to call in or, or type something in the caption, maybe any type of reactions or um I don't know, some questions maybe about this exoplanet discovery or just exoplanets in general or any, uh, yeah, just comments or, or, or responses. Otherwise, let's see. It says, yeah, by about 2024 is when we're hoping that that'll be when the exoplanet is going to be uh, transiting in front of the star again. So there we go. That sort of explains why <laughs> why we have to wait so long with our, um, with our research, whether you're doing research directly or, you know, someone else is doing the research, you just kind of have to wait for things to line up. It's just like a mission to Mars. You know, it's like, why would we launch a mission to Mars at the time when we know Mars is super, super far away from earth? And then just having the person or the people within, you know, within the spacecraft be in there for an extra three months when they could cut their trip, you know, by a quarter, or in half uh, when Mars is actually located closer to us in its orbit. So it's all about kind of knowing like where the positions of objects are in space. So this is all that I read today on Sky and Telescope for their exoplanets. This was published a couple days ago um, by AAS NOVA. So I'm guessing that is the American Astronomical Society NOVA report. Uh, so if you guys want to go ahead and check that out, do that. Otherwise, let's just sort of end today on astronomy picture of the day. And again, feel free to call in if you guys got any anything you want to share, any questions or comments. So astronomy picture of the day is Centaurus A, which is about 11 million light years away. Centaurus A is the closest active galaxy to planet Earth. Don't quite know what they mean by that because Andromeda is the closest galaxy, but this is the closest active galaxy. Ah, it means active galactic nucleus. Very good. Which is that compact region in the center of a galaxy that has a much higher than normal luminosity over at least some portion of the electromagnetic spectrum with characteristics indicating that luminosity is not produced by stars. So, um, usually goes to show that there is something at the center that is causing a lot of activity, like a quasar or a supermassive black hole, um, And so that is what is our closest active galaxy. So Centaurus A spanning over 60,000 light years in size. It has a peculiar elliptical shape. It's also known as NGC 5128. And this picture is a telescopic view. And it is the result of a collision of two other galaxies. That's really cool, Uh, which is why it has such a strange shape. So if you ever wanted to look at classifications of galaxies, um, usually there's like irregular galaxies or peculiar elliptical galaxies. Those are usually results of, of a galaxy collision. So whenever two galaxies merge, you know, think about trying to combine things together. It's going to get messy. Um, it's, it's not going to be like a perfect shape. So it'll get a little bit crazy. And Lauren, what's up? How's it going? It is going well. Awesome. I, had question,
1: I had a question not related to the astronomy picture of the day, but uh, back to the, the exoplanet. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do they have some way of approximating the mass of those other than just a visual estimation of size? I mean, is there some kind of a, a, a mathematical formula for how often it goes around the sun or how far away it is from the uh, the star rather?
0: I bet there's more to it than what I'm about to say. But, but, so I'll look into that because I'm trying to remember what else there is. But the first thing I think of is probably just the um, the orbit in which it's going around the center of mass. And then knowing the mass of the star that it's orbiting around. And then comparing like the... the let me see. what What would it be? I would say like understanding the mass of it. Would be sort of how its gravitational influence is on maybe other objects around it. So potentially other, um, like other, other planets that are near it, or how fast it's spinning, or how fast it's moving around in its orbit. Um, so these are a few factors. Uh, so if you know the size of the star, then you'll be able to figure out the size of the planet based on, um, what was it? It was it was Newton's law of uh, of gravitation. Um, so basically, it's looking at the distance of those two, and then looking at how fast it's moving, and then knowing the mass of the other of the star, you can figure out the mass of that second body, which would be the planet. So there is a mathematical formula for it. I'm gonna look right, this up real cool. quick. Gravitational formula. It's like g. Uh, g yeah. So F equals G m1 times m2 over r squared. So f is the force. If you happen to know what that external force is, uh, and then the gravitational constant, so gravitational constant is a little bit different. So you're going to, the force would be, um, what is the, what the star is, is, is of how the star is affecting that planet. So what mm-hmm. that force is, that's being applied. M1 would be the, the mass of that star. Uh, and, and usually they like, because of the type of star that it is, it's it's usually documented and understood because there's so many stars that have been documented for centuries. Right. So you, once you have that, you'd want to figure out that mass. So then you'd have that empty in the equation, just M2, and then over R squared, uh, which would be that distance between the two masses. So the star yeah. and the planet. And that's how you'll figure it out. All right. Very cool. Yeah. So Newton's law of universal gravitation. That is the formula. Very nice. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. And it looks like Joshua. All right. What is up, Joshua? I was curious. How are you doing?
1: Um, doing well. I was good. I was curious. I saw something about theories, C-E-R-E-S. I believe it was on futurism. Um, and it is, I believe, an asteroid. Um, so that was something recent. And I just wanted to get an idea of besides, you know, Mars and the moon, You know, uh, trips to other, well, places where we could mine, quite frankly. And that's what they're talking about, which from a climate perspective, I'm a little bit against figuring out how to mine these things when we can't figure out how to not mine our current planet. Um, But, you know, from looking at the future, what does that potentially look like?
0: Yeah, that's a a great question. And Ceres, um, so you're right. And at the same time, it's also has like two different terms. So it was considered an asteroid for a very long time. It's being reclassified as a dwarf planet. Um, so like Pluto, um, again, International Astronomical Union, I guess, because it, it, there's, I guess the main reason why it'd be considered a dwarf planet rather than an asteroid has something to do with probably its orbit. And potentially if it has something orbiting around it, like a satellite, um, I would double check that. But, uh, Ceres is a dwarf planet. I remember this because it was discovered a long time ago in 1801. And I used it for for a space history one, one week, um, back in January. And so it is, um, kind of far to get to it's, you know, it's just past the orbit of Pluto. So for sure, I think that there will be missions that are going to want to like visit these other bodies. Um, and to mine uh, a lot of these celestial bodies is, I don't think too um, bad of an idea, but I do think that yes, it's it's very, very tricky. Uh, there was a mission to asteroid Bennu. There was another mission to another asteroid. I forgot which one it was. And basically, just trying to land on them. I, from what I remember watching the, the like live broadcast from NASA, it can be very difficult. Um, but there are so many elements, like precious elements, that we could utilize here on Earth with that that space rock. Um, and on one hand, that's like okay, that could be really, really great, right? Like we could use that for things here. Um, on the other hand, okay, to what extent should we be mining these other bodies? If there's no evidence of, of life on these bodies, right? Maybe the moral question there is, okay, so is it so wrong to, to mine? The other question is, okay, well, we're going to have to develop really, really good technology, solid technology to get ourselves there or a robotic mission. We probably wouldn't send people a robotic mission there, then collect some of these samples or elements, or maybe you're doing a whole like a whole load, an entire payload of a collection. Maybe you know that the samples contain like platinum and you want to collect a whole bunch. You then have to have that shipped all the way back to Earth. And the way I look at it is, although maybe the drive isn't so, um, is isn't so, it's like the, the word I'm thinking of, it's not so like humanitarian, I guess, of a drive where it's not like, oh, we're doing this to have a better cause for humanity. Like maybe the drive is actually for a, a private company and they're like, oh, the drive is money for me. Although that's not the most positive drive, what can come out of that I think is so exceptional because there's so many, um, there's so much technology and there are so many discoveries and knowledge that comes from missions like this very, very difficult, hard missions like this, um, that I think could end up resulting in solving a lot of problems that we have here on earth, or at least like, you know, potentially creating new solutions, um, to, to maybe some issues. Uh, so an example, I guess, sort of for that would be like, um, you know, a big question is sort of like, why, why go to space? And there are a ton of, um, things that, came out of missions, like going to space, like when the Hubble Space Telescope was launched. This is probably one of like my, my, my favorite examples. Um, it was launched and a lot of the images were coming back blurry and it cost like, I think somewhere around like a billion dollars to make or, or several hundred million dollars to make and to launch. And everyone's like, oh, great. Like, you know, of course, the news and the press and the media were like, what a waste of money. We sent this stupid thing to space to take photos. Who cares? You know, like there's people starving here. And then what ended up happening was afterwards when, you know, I mean, under this pressure, a lot of people just were like working endless nights, like working really, really hard to try and solve the problem. And through that solution, which was like through like a, some type of like image sharpening software that was developed by software engineers at NASA, they then incorporated that technology into medical establishments and hospitals for mammograms to detect breast cancer much earlier on to then like catch it earlier in the term to then terminate it and then end up like possibly causing uh, like a, a hindering in any type of tumor growing any more than it would have. And so like, that's probably one of my favorite examples just because like, we never know what can come out of these kinds of missions, but when we put ourselves under that type of pressure to, um, just do it anyway and to, to go to another celestial body or to explore something, we know, we never really know, like, how much that could actually benefit us on Earth. And for sure, you could say the other way, the dystopian way. We're like, oh, well, it could also harm us. For sure. Like, that would be naive to say that that's not possible too. Um, but I think that, uh, if we don't, even try to go, then how are we going to even evolve? We'll like kind of end up kind of plateaued and stagnant. Um, One other example is MOXIE, which is uh, a component, a piece of technology on the Perseverance rover on Mars that converts carbon dioxide into oxygen. And like, just what I like learned about that, the first area that my brain went to, and I'm sure a lot of people too, was just like, oh, wow, that could be really helpful for climate change on earth like being able to convert carbon dioxide to oxygen, like we can do that on Mars and possibly make Mars a little more habitable for us to possibly visit. We could also benefit that, you know, we, we could also use that to, to benefit us here on Earth too at the same time. So that's why I think it's so important to just sort of take these big leaps and these big risks sometimes.
1: Um, is is that Moxie? Can you send a, or provide a link to that uh, information yeah. on Moxie? Yes, and um, I, I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure how many of your callers would be familiar with or interested in modern monetary theory, um, and or how we spend money into existence, and we can invest it in programs like these, as opposed to killer programs. Um, but you know, that's kind of how we get these things done. Um, since we are a fiat currency already, um, you know, there's no reason not to do that. And these are the types of things that Kennedy actually did but also got him you know probably a shorter lifespan for thinking this way so
0: ah okay I'll, I'll i'm gonna look into that i already pulled up a tab on it um and i'll i'll look into maybe, maybe we'll do an episode together on that that'd be really interesting to learn about thanks for bringing that up uh that's so cool um and then yeah, i i'm literally i'm reading up on it right now um but for the for moxie i've got the link right now i will share it in the caption after this. I don't think I can actually have this. Can I paste it right now? I might be able to paste it. Here we go. Awesome. I just pasted it in the chat. Um, If you want to learn a little bit about MOXIE, um, which by the way, stands for Mars Oxygen In Suto Resource Utilization Experiment always, always a very long name. This is why they use acronyms. Um, but awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Joshua. And I'm going to definitely keep, um, the MMT in mind as well. Modern monetary theory. Um, and look, look into that a little bit more. So thanks for that. Alrighty, everyone. Well, um, looks like, you know, we're, we're just about, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, reaching a, a time where I think we kind of got to chat about everything here for today. Uh, if you want to look into, again, that exoplanet discovery, go ahead and and look into it a little bit more. Maybe look up some some data and some uh, some di- diagrams that came through for it. And I will update us as we get more stuff in from James Webb, but that might not be until 2024. So until then... Um, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day, and I will catch you all next time on the next episode of Space Talk. And as always, until next time, Ad Astra!